Hello and welcome to the Bipolar Feminist Podcast. This is your host, Nikita Ramkisun, and today I'm talking to Alyssa Frazier of the world's first sexual assault reporting tool called She's a Crowd. This online reporting tool was started by Zoe Conliffe, a data activist, gender advocate, researcher, and now the founder and CEO of She's a Crowd. The tool is web-based, is completely anonymous, and seeks to gain justice for survivors through data collection. Trigger warning. This episode makes mention of rape, sexual assault, miscarriage, child abuse, and lack of access to justice. So welcome Alyssa Frazier from Australia, from She's a Crowd, the world's first sexual assault and harassment reporting tool. Yeah. So can you tell me about the welcome? Tell me about She's a Crowd, this reporting system. Uh, How does it work? So in terms of how we work, so we have a team in Australia who run the site and keep us running. And so, you know, we do all the logistics behind that. But in terms of people using our site, it is a really simple site and it allows people to click on easily and they go through a 10-step process of reporting and you ask multiple choice questions, but you're also given a chance to provide a written response to elaborate and share your story in a more in-depth nature. And then we take that data, it's all anonymous, and it is all de-identified before we publish the data. But we use that data to give to local authorities so that they're able to improve their area and improve circumstances for women within their area. That's amazing because we've never really had a centralized kind of reporting system or reporting tool before. So why the decision to start this? She's a Crowd was founded by our founder and CEO, Zoe, in 2019 after she herself found herself in a situation where she wasn't given justice for what happened to her. And she had no outlet to share her story. So she created She's a Crowd in 2019 by herself to give herself and all the other women out there and survivors an outlet to share their story and to also create a space where we are able to use those stories for power, to give us back our power and to use them to create a change. And, you know, one of our big taglines is change the story. And I think that's the biggest drive behind She's a Crowd is changing the story. And yeah, that's what she was striving for when she created it in 2019. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think she's doing a very good job. It is. In fact, I tested out using it for uh, a friend of mine who had said that she'd been assaulted. And I said, okay, try using this. And she said Mm -hmm. she felt quite cathartic afterwards because she felt like even though it was a questionnaire of sorts, she felt that her voice was important. Yeah, and I think that's one of the most important aspects of She's a Crowd is hearing survivors and believing survivors, you know, and we go through all those stories um, individually and Uh. read them and, you know, it's devastating, but, you know, it's nice to know that you can be that person for someone Uh. and that someone out there is having their story heard for the first time in a lot of circumstances. I think that's the most powerful part. 
And I'll get back to the power of the tool in itself in a minute. But can you explain to me how the mechanism itself works? Yeah, so She's a Crab, we operate in multiple different teams. But for instance, our data team, which I'm not a part of, but I could give you a synopsis of what they do is they have all the data come into them as raw data and they go through each individual story, they identify it as well as they have a system where once the raw data has been de-identified and sorted through, they put it into the system and it will pick up on things such as keywords, location, all the tags that are attached with the story through the questionnaire. And it will be able to put the data into different sections within the algorithm so that we know exactly what is coming through and mm-hmm. where. And so I'm not a data expert, so it's a bit lost on me, a lot of the sort of tech behind it. Mm-hmm. But it is amazing. You know, they were showing it to us just the other day. And was amazed because you can go onto the map, you can select where, and you can put in the keyword. So say we're giving it to transport authorities, we can put in transport and it will show us all stories within that area related to transport mm-hmm. or um, catcalling. You can do the same. You can do it for any particular field. It's sort of a hard thing to label there. but mm-hmm. um, And then you're able to find all the stories relating to that to then pass on to the authorities that wish to use that. Mm-hmm. And people have the option to share their stories with authority or not? Yes. So that's um, a big sort of thing at the end. You have the option whether you want this data to be used. And, you know, there's little boxes that say, are you okay with us posting this on our socials? Because, you know, we do post occasionally, as posted on just this morning, actually, a quote from one of the stories on our socials. And so, you know, you have an option whether you're okay with that happening or not. Obviously, it is completely anonymous, but, Uh you know, people still don't want that out there, even if it is anonymous. But, yeah, there is also a section whether you want that data to be passed any further than us. Uh And how do the recipients of the data use the data, such as transport authorities? Yeah, so that's a very individual thing to each authority. It's very hard to sort of give any one answer to that because each authority Mm -hmm. uses it in different ways some authorities don't end up actually using the data but the idea behind it is that they're able to pinpoint so because it is a um, geospatial data set they're able to pinpoint specific areas that are problematic say lowly underpass sort of lack of cameras very isolated areas they're able to find those areas and fix them and make them safer, especially the lower underpasses. And so the idea is that they see multiple stories in that one area, all within the same sort of sphere, all very similar. And they're able to go in and fix the problem that's allowing that to happen. So whilst each team or authority that takes the data uses it differently, that's the sort of, sort of yeah, that's what it's intended for. Mm-hmm. And so far, what kind of response have you got from authorities using this data? So currently, we have only been in contact with Australian authorities, as we are an Australian-based company and Mm -hmm. we operate strongly out of Australia. However, the data is available to everyone who wishes to use it from every country. They're able to get their data. But, you know, we've been mostly working with transport authorities because mm-hmm. we did a large campaign 
over that recently. A few ones actually, we did Bicycle Network and then we did Loomy, a ride share. And, you know, so we've been in contact with Transport Victoria, which is one of our states here in Australia and their transport sector and work with them to, you know, we allow you to put in exactly, say, what tram or what bus you were on, which route um, uh-huh. when you're doing a transport story. And then we pass that data on and they're able to identify which buses and which trams in particular, which routes are having the most issues on and getting more personnel to man those um, transport routes. Uh-huh. So that's the sort of change we're seeing at the moment. Uh-huh. One of the big criticisms that has been received through social media, especially for reporting services like this, is that it's retrospective and it's not sorting out the actual problem. How do we kind of use this information to start sorting out the actual problem? Well, I would say I disagree with that statement in itself because I think the problem that we're addressing the you know the most prominent one that we address is the lack of reporting and the fact mm-hmm. that you know we don't actually get women sharing these stories and so by the fact we've gotten over 100k stories already that itself is wow. really you know hitting the nail on the head when it comes to the problem that is 100k more stories shared than we would have had if she's a cop didn't exist of course so i think we're already at the point where we've made a huge change. I think the next part is, yeah, getting it more into society and getting the data to where it needs to go. But that's, you know, that comes to down to authorities and that's, you know, not hmm. something we have the ability to intervene in. We can't hmm. go around putting up street lamps. That is, hmm. you know, it's a third party. So I think for us and when it comes to our mission, you know, we've already seen a huge accomplishment across the board mm-hmm. just through having the website up. So, yeah, I think that sort of criticism is quite invalid when it comes yeah. to what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Because the aim is to have people's voices heard and to collect that data for yeah. specific functionality. Yeah, I definitely think that first and foremost, our mission is to believe survivors and to hear yes. survivors. And that's what we're doing. And it's working and it's helping women all over the world. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that is the most important part of what we do. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you are running out of Australia only for now. Yeah. Should other people want to get chapters started? Would that be a possibility? So at the moment, we don't have the ability to expand out of Australia due to the nature of our setup, as we are still classified as a tech startup, given the amount of people on our team. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very hard for us to expand out of Australia. I mean, we don't at the moment have a permanent office or a full-time team. We are all sort of part-time and we all work remotely, though we do occasionally meet up and work together. But I think the first step now is establishing an office and a full-time team. Mm-hmm. And I think once we get that within Australia, that's when we're able to look further. But we do work with people in other countries already. They're not a part of our team necessarily, but they are, you know, we work with them and they're able to share our story and our company and help us in their areas of the world. Mm -hmm. 
And should everything go according to plan, it would be possible to open up satellite offices at a later stage. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that is in Zoe's long-term goal, Mm -hmm. Um, but it may be still a while. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm a survivor myself. I never got justice. I was, thank you. I was four years old. I was uh, abused between the the ages of four and nine. Mm -hmm. And looking at how people receive people's stories in the public sphere, it has been so disheartening for people who have these experiences to hear a response like, why didn't you come forward sooner? Or why didn't you speak up when it was happening? Et cetera, et cetera. What is the feeling that you are getting from these stories in terms of being believed and all of the criticism that gets thrown at survivors? Yeah, so it's very difficult because we do have a lot of stories come in where we have survivors saying that they've never told anyone before this is the first Mm. time they're ever sharing their story. You know, we get a lot of people saying they didn't even know what happened was wrong until mm. they were older. Yeah. They didn't understand that it was something that they should speak out about or they could. And then we have the story that we posted on our socials this morning was about a woman who did seek help and go to the police, but she was turned away Oof. and told that she didn't have enough evidence and she was refused medical assistance. Uh-uh. And it's just, you know, it's devastating to hear. And it, yeah, we get, they are our most frequent stories. We, I actually, you know, I work with the stories quite a bit in my role. And I don't recall ever reading a story where a woman has been able to talk about the positive change that happened or that she has gone to the police and it had been sorted. I don't think we've gotten, I certainly haven't read any story like that. Uh-huh. I think that's why it's just so important. Yeah, I mean, it's devastating for me to hear. I mean, I'm also a survivor myself of childhood abuse. um, I'm sorry. Ages of 11 to 14. And I was lucky in the sense that, you know, I didn't get justice legally, but as it was through an institution, later on there was an investigation into the institution itself, and the institution was to have been found guilty. Uh Um, of allowing this to happen and you know I say I'm lucky but all we got was a public apology in a Uh pdf doc and there was no personalization there was no none of the perpetrators were held accountable none of them Uh were jailed but you know we got a pdf doc with you know saying we're sorry and to me I think joy you know that's crazy (laughs) that I think it's crazy that I go look at that and go I'm so lucky because they recognized Mm. it, but that's not even the bare minimum. That's below the bare minimum of what we should be receiving. So it is really disheartening to think that women aren't even getting that, survivors aren't even getting that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that a lot of survivors tell me is they want to know why, why them, why were they a target, especially when it comes to childhood abuse, because usually it's somebody known you know definitely and I think you know we have a section within our sort of I think you said the word questionnaire I quite like that word Um, we have a section within there talking about why they think the perpetrator did what they did Uh and it's not about you know a lot of people hear that question they're like oh that's victim blaming because you're saying things such as like my clothes that's not 
what the questioner is addressing. You know, it talks about it's looking at it from a perspective of it was sexism, it was transphobic, it was mm-hmm. racist, that mm-hmm. sort of section. And obviously, it is a multiple choice question, so it doesn't go super in depth. However, there is a section where you're allowed to put other and you're mm-hmm. allowed to add your own answer. But I think to me, that was one of the best questions I encountered when I first did this, because obviously I found out that she's a crab before I started working here. Yeah. So I remember looking at that question and I was stumped on that question for so long because I was like, why did it happen? But at the same time, just thinking about that and seeing, you know, things such as sexism, ageism, all that, the perpetrator's behavior, um, lack of education, that sort of thing, it really made me think. And, you know, you don't get beyond the sort of they thought they had a right they really the sexism the fact that I had no ability to fight back they knew that I wouldn't Uh and in the end I think I came to the conclusion that they did it because they are a horrible person and I don't think it goes beyond that in my mind and I know I'm sure some scientists out there or psychologists will have some more elaborate answer for people and why perpetrators do it but to me and to a lot of survivors, I know that the answer is that they are just a horrid person. Mm. Um, yeah. And I don't need any more than that. I think a lot of survivors don't really need or want the complicated psychological answer. I, there's certainly some that would, but for me, mm. it's just I'm happy with yeah. the answer. But they're just horrific. Mm. Which brings me to the question I had in mind earlier about power. Because sexual assault is absolutely about power and not sexual gratification. Definitely. And what sense of powerlessness have you seen in these responses? Because I'm sure there's a lot. I think, yeah, we definitely do get a sense of the survival feeling powerless. That is one of the most common things that we get. It is always, I didn't know what to do. You know, I fought, but it wasn't enough. I didn't fight because I knew I couldn't win. Even when I fought, yeah. it, you know, I still was hurt already. You know, it is, mm. even if I got out of it, I was still already in that, in the situation. You know, I think it is a big, you know, and I think a lot of the trauma comes out of that sense of vulnerability and feeling so powerless. So, I think the second question that comes after tell us a little bit more about what happened, where it's talking about what do you think needs to change? For me, I think that question was what gave me my power back because, mm-hmm. you know, in the first question, you are writing about that powerless feeling and experience of just not being able to do enough and not feeling enough and then... You get to the second question, you're like, this is where I reclaim my power because this is where I do something with what happened and I make a change and I take my power back and I don't let what happened define me because I'm going to let this part of my story define me. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is where, well, for me, that's where I got my power from. I know it's where I got my power back from, or should I mm. say. And I think it's, again, it's every survivor has a different story and it's different for everyone. But yeah, I definitely think there is a section there where it is really about reclaiming your power. 
<laughs> and that's to me one of the most important parts of recovery is mm. finding a way to reclaim your power. And like I said, it's different for everyone, but yeah, it's the most important step. Because that question, why do you think this happened? When I was looking over the strength shoulder, because I decided I'm not going to use the tool because of how long ago it happened. Um, mm. This was um, we. You can use the tool. You know, I dated back quite some time when I used mm. it. We have people who report from the 1900s, 1970s, 60s. Wow. It goes well back. So, um, and, you know, whilst it is what with our data, we do focus on current data, giving to authorities. Like I said, a big part of our mission is just to listen, to believe Mm -hmm. survivors and to let survivors just tell their truth. That's so important. Yeah. When I was looking through the questions, though, that question stuck out at me because what was I wearing? Wait, I was six years old the first time this happened. Or what were the circumstances? What were you drinking kind of they came to mind. And I was like, yeah, it can be seen as victim blaming, but in the mind of the survivor. Yeah. Those are very real questions. Like, what could I have done differently? So it wasn't me that day. Definitely. I, you know, and it is about that stuff every day. It is very much a powerlessness, you know. I run a website for survivors to tell their stories completely. Like they write their own stories and I publish them. The only thing that I do is I receive the story, I edit for grammar, clarity, legality, all of those kinds of things. If it's a minor, a current minor, I obviously tell them I do need to take this to the authorities because I am bound by law to do so. And then um, when they tell me their stories, the feeling that I get reading them is that all they want is an understanding ear, somebody to say, I believe you, I'm sorry this happened, and you are loved and you are valid. Yeah, I think that is what all survivors seek when they first mm-hmm. share their story is just, mm-hmm. you know, just being believed, being heard, mm-hmm. and for someone to understand. And that understanding I think can be used in so many different ways because now you're using it as not just an outlet, but a reporting tool that is collecting the data and is actually making a difference outside of somebody just telling their story. Do you see it growing as in terms of like a research base? Definitely, yeah. So a lot of our data is also used for research purposes. So Mm -hmm. we have a lot of students who contact us for data or to talk to us as well when they're writing their research papers on gender-based violence um, mm-hmm. and they're able to specifically focus in on one area or focus globally as a result of our research mm-hmm. um, for our data collection. So I recently spoke to a master's student in the UK who um, mm-hmm. was doing their story on gender-based violence throughout the 20s and throughout quarantine Mm -hmm. and yeah I was able to provide her with the data um, the insight as a team member with the data that we had come in and yeah she's able she'll be publishing that paper um, by the end of this year and so I think that is a really big step forward Mm -hmm. for just getting the data out there because I think that is just as important as having the data implemented yeah people knowing yeah, the information being shared. Yeah, mm-hmm. and just starting the conversation. This is amazing. 
She's a Crowd is the 2022 state winner for the Telstra Best of Business Awards in the Accelerating yes. Woman category in New South Wales? Uh, nationally. Oh, nationally. Wow. Yeah. Forgive me. How did that come about? So I was not present on my team during the, when we won the award, but Zoe, our CEO, speaks of it often and it is a long process to getting nominated for the award and all that. And it is about her sort of going out there and speaking to people and mm-hmm. talking about our mission and what we've achieved and what we're going to achieve. Mm. Um, and I think that winning that award was um, really big for us because it was about us being recognised. Yes. As, and being almost, you know, uh, we talk about how survivors seek that validation and that yeah. their story is valid. For us, it was that our mission is valid and that what we're doing is what we want to be doing, you know. Mm-hmm. And we also won the 2022 Tech Diversity Awards for Social Impact, mm-hmm. which is very similar. And I was there to accept that one. Congratulations. And yeah, and I mean, I it's like when we won it, I remember going back to my table after giving a speech and being on the verge of tears because it was incredible. And, you know, in my speech, I was sort of shaking a little bit because mm. I was like, this is incredible. And that's why, you know, we dedicate our awards to survivors, um, but also people who are currently and, you know, victim of gender-based violence and because for us you know that's what it's all about Mm -hmm. so with the advent of this kind of reporting tool and i noticed very cleverly that you have a quick exit button yes how do you hope to expand it because one of the things that i've always wanted to do is start an app that records not just somebody having uh, gone through something like that but being able to record evidence of abuse and be able to access resources. And this is an app that has been sitting at the back of my mind for years and years and years. In fact, a friend of mine, she and I spoke about it, and unfortunately, she passed away of birth complications in 2020. I'm sorry for your loss. Thanks. She was an absolute powerhouse. And so when she died, I was like, no, I actually need to make this happen. And it's been two years and it's still kind of, how do I make this happen? How do I make this happen? Would you think about expanding the functionalities of the service? We're constantly sort of expanding and adapting at Choose a Crowd. And I know that we are looking to make a sort of app that you can download from the app store in the near future and we've recently just published oh i think it's actually i don't think it's published yet but our data team one of the people on our data team has been working towards collecting resources for each individual country and Uh compiling them so that no matter where you are in the world you can go into she's a crowd and they will give you your local authority or your local service to reach out to for support. So within Australia, there is plenty that I know of. Um, One of the ones that we will be linking is the Survivor Hub, which is not a government service. It's an NGO like us. um, Mm -hmm. And it allows the women and survivors to go to Survivor Meetup 
to simply share their story and talk to someone about it, talk to people mm. who are like them, who are survivors like them. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the many resources that we will be sort of linking to our page. But yeah, so those are all external resources that we link mm-hmm. as we are mostly a data company. And one of the things that I quite like about the service so far is that there is a leaning towards recognizing that there is racial and economic and disability disparities in gender-based violence. And how do we get that knowledge of, or that, or get that data rather, out into the hands of people who can make a difference? Yeah, so it is really about, you know, we have all that data. And like I told you before in our platform that the data is accessed through. We're able to look particularly at racially motivated, ableist mm. areas and low socioeconomic areas. And we are able to sort of hone in on particular mm-hmm. issues that we're seeing um, and then pass that on to yeah researchers and authorities. But it is very much about, you know, we can't, force the data upon people mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. we have to have people who want to use the data and who mm-hmm. want to see the truth mm-hmm. but i think what's really sort of motivating is we are seeing a sort of higher frequency of people requesting our data at the moment and using it in this like i said we have so many students who reach out to us who are researching Um, Mm -hmm. the current issues, looking for our data. And to me, that's amazing because... It is the students, I think. They are seeing that the students are the ones sort of reaching out the most. Whilst we do wish authorities were the ones who we saw the most interest in our data, I think the fact that it is the younger generation that is reaching out, Mm -hmm. it gives this sort of sense of hope that they're going to then go into the places where the authorities are and they're going to be able to make the change with this Mm -hmm. and I think you know obviously we've just seen that we've been set back um, with the way we've seen and I Mm -hmm. talked about great-grandma even thinking that it was her dementia Mm -hmm. and it was heartbreaking to watch that in itself but I think we do really have to uh, just cling on to that hope that the next generation is going to do better and Mm -hmm. I think we've had this period now where we've seen it go back, but we've also seen the resistance and the fact that, you know, it's gone mm. back, but that's in the hands of you know, seven sort of older conservative people. And they were the only ones who had the say in this decision, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I think just the system yeah. there is the flawed part. Yeah. But when you see the resistance to that, it gives you that hope that, mm-hmm. yeah, these people did make that decision, but that's not what the people wanted. Yeah. And that is 100% on them and not on the people. And mm-hmm. that us as just a population are fighting back and will continue to fight back. And I think, yeah. you know, I think I've gone off on a bit of a tangent to your question, but no worries. Yeah. And speaking of uh, Roe v. Wade. How do you think that this overturning is going to affect people experiencing sexual violence reporting their stories, especially in the US? I think the overturning of Roe v. Wade has just, it's, there's so many repercussions of it Mm -hmm. legally. And yeah, it has essentially gone and told women that your story is not valid and Mm -hmm. that 
you know, the fact that people were victims of incest and rape still won't be able to have an abortion. I think that is telling them that, and the fact that they use the phrase that it was God's will, Mm. that phrase in itself, you know, and America is quite a religious country. Not everyone, obviously, there is quite a large religious body to hear that. And it was God's will for that horrendous act mm-hmm. to happen to them. Yeah, It's really going to be incredibly harmful for women mm-hmm. um, and not just in America, worldwide. You know, mm-hmm. people say, why are you marching if you're in Australia? Why are you protesting if you're in Australia? And it is very much the, this isn't just an issue in America. Mm-hmm. This decision may affect American laws only but it affects women worldwide because Mm -hmm. it makes the people in the positions that the Supreme Court was in think that they now have this sort of global precedent to make decisions like that Mm -hmm. within their own countries. And then it's okay to do that, which which it is not. So we're a huge fallout from this. I think we really need to make sure that the media is instead pushing for the fact that this is wrong. Mm -hmm. I really hope that we're able to show the story that the true story, that it is not an act of God. Mm -hmm. It is not God's will. And what happened to you was a terrible crime. Mm -hmm. And you're allowed to heal. You are more than what they say you are. And Mm -hmm. I really hope we start to see in the media from this. Yeah, because we are going to see a drop in people reporting rape, especially if they are pregnant, wouldn't we? Definitely. And I think everyone's saying, and I 100% agree with this, is the decision hasn't stopped abortions. It stopped safe abortions. Safe abortion, yeah. It's prevented healthcare and it's stopping women from being able to seek not just healthcare, but further support, mm-hmm. you know. When I experienced my abuse, I got pregnant from it and I was too young to even understand what that meant. Mm -hmm. Um, I hadn't even had my first period. So it completely, I didn't even understand. I miscarried early in the pregnancy Mm -hmm. and it happened in a school bathroom with my friend there with me and it was a horrible experience and I didn't tell anyone because, you know, she didn't tell anyone. It was our, it almost felt like a dirty little secret between the two mm-hmm. of us. That this, mm-hmm. And we never spoke about it unless it was to each other. And when we did, it was just, you know, we kind of almost sat in this tension every time it was brought up. Yeah. And that was because at the time we didn't have the education and in the media that was, you know, at the time it was still very much something that wasn't spoken about. And so that's the narrative we were fed. And so both of us really were left traumatized from this event, thinking that it was our issue and we could not seek help for it because we were in the wrong. Yeah. More particularly, I was in the wrong. Mm. And she was a bystander to that. Yeah. Or she was someone who was involved in it. Mm-hmm. We are going to see a lot more of that now yeah. with women and children who have this happen to them, but they don't tell anyone because they think that they are in the wrong again mm-hmm. and that it's their fault because they have now criminalized things such as miscarriages. If you miscarry, yeah. there's a criminal investigation into that. And Which is so, so bizarre. Exactly. So women who miscarry now are going to be criminalized. And as someone who had a miscarriage, 
it is already one of the worst experiences of your traumatic. life. It is so it, traumatic. And you never forget it. Every second of it is so, there's something about when it happens that your brain is so switched on that you mm-hmm. remember every second, everything you felt. Mm-hmm. But then to have to go and sit in a police station to be told that you're a criminal, to be investigated like you're a criminal. Like your body you, is a crime. Yeah, and when you yourself already feel horrible about it, that is adding so much unnecessary trauma Mm. into the experience. So women are not going to seek help after a miscarriage because they know it will only make things worse. But then the alternative of staying quiet and not being able to speak about it is so much worse as well. Mm -hmm. Not just miscarriages, it's atomic pregnancies Mm -hmm. or Pregnancy, as I can really pronounce that topic. That's it. It's even just birth control, having an IUD. Mm-hmm. Um, that's now going to be illegal in many states within America. Yeah. yeah. And they're just taking away our safety. Yeah. First and foremost. Because if somebody miscarries and they don't want to go to the hospital out of fear of being reported and the cops coming, yeah. I mean, they could die of septicemia. Exactly. And, you know, obviously I didn't go to a hospital and I was incredibly sick for, Mm -hmm. I reckon, months. You know, it sort of all blurred together for me at that period in my life. I was incredibly sick for months following that. Luckily, it happened at the end of the school day and I hopped on the bus with my friend and she came home with me. Mm -hmm. We managed to clean up decently to get on the bus and we got on the bus. I passed out on the bus ride home. She ended up having to sort of half carry me back to my house. Mm. And then she stayed with me until my parents got home and just told them I had had a sore tummy. And she stayed with me that, that support. Yeah. I, again, I think I was one of the lucky ones because if mm-hmm. I didn't have, who knows what would have happened to me if I didn't have her with me. If I'd gone to, into yeah. that bathroom by myself to start with, and had that miscarriage alone, it would have been so much worse and I could have easily lost my life. Mm-hmm. But I was lucky I'm to have that still support. Here. Yeah, and I think the issue we're seeing now is people aren't going to have that support. Mm. Not and everyone everybody has a, is suspicious. Yeah, not everyone has a friend like mine who is just so unconditionally there for me. Not everyone mm-hmm. is that lucky, Yeah, especially age of 12. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people would have just left me mm-hmm. and even more so now. Yeah. And I think that one of the scariest things is I think we will see a higher fatality rate in pregnancies mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Women of color are already so disenfranchised by the medical system. So it's going to affect disproportionately affect women of color and uh, poor people and immigrants and essentially marginalized folk a lot more. Yeah, definitely. I think especially, I mean, I'm not too good with other countries' healthcare, but I know that countries such as America, they don't have healthcare. Mm -hmm. And if you do, you have to be really rich to be able to afford the healthcare over there. Even Mm -hmm. I'm pretty lucky in the sense that we have universal healthcare, Mm -hmm. but not every private health. And that already means that we see Um, women of a low economic class experiencing horrific pregnancies and not Mm -hmm. getting the support. Mm -hmm. So, And Indigenous women as well. Yes, and Indigenous women, especially with Indigenous women, they are treated horribly within the Australian healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So I've heard. Yeah, Australia, you know, we like to think of ourselves as 
being better. But yeah. in reality, we're so much worse in so many areas. And it's it's going to be devastating to see. And I think this is the point where we need to, as women, band together yeah. more than ever because we're not going to get the support from the government now. We're going to have to give it to each other. We absolutely do. I think all gender minorities as well, like just banding together and helping each other. And my final question, how do people get involved with She's a Crowd? So She's a Crowd, if you... In the sense of working at Choose a Crowd, we are mm-hmm. always, however, we only hire within Australia. Mm-hmm. However, if you don't necessarily want to work at Choose a Crowd, but you would love to get involved, I think the first step would be following us on our socials so that you're able to keep up to date with what we're doing when mm-hmm. um, and helping us in our mission by just starting the conversation. And I think the most important part of She's a Crowd is the social aspect. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think to support She's a Crowd and to get involved is to bring the conversation, you know, start the conversation within your own lives. If only I was in Australia, I would apply to work there in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of that. And it is so, yeah, it is really annoying that we're only within Australia at the moment. So hopefully one day we'll be able to expand so you can have lovely people like you on our team. But yeah, at this point, we're only within Australia. Well, I look forward to the expansion because uh, yes. then you're going to have to put up with me. <laughs> yes. I, I'm also looking forward to the expansion. <laughs> I would love to work with some people from across the globe a bit more. That would be amazing. I want to say thank you for sharing your story with me. Thank you for trusting me with it. And I believe you. You are valid. and You are loved. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me here and sharing your story with me. And I hope to hear more from you in the future. It was an absolute pleasure having you on and hopefully we'll chat soon. Thank you for listening. Again, this is your host, Nikita Ramkisun, and this is the final episode of Season 2. I will be taking a short break, after which I will see you for Season 3. I would like to thank my patrons for making this podcast possible. You have been absolutely invaluable to this journey. In the meantime, you can support me by subscribing to The Bipolar Feminist on Patreon, or you can donate directly to Nikki Starfish on Coffee.